Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, Podrishners, or good evening, or good afternoon, or good middle of the night, whenever you are listening to this, uh, and everybody else who is tuning in by some other means. Really good to be here this morning. Man, uh, really feel the presence of God. Have all morning. And uh, had a good little dance session over there and burned off my calories. It's just good to get together and worship God, isn't it? And then break open the word. Uh, really appreciate Steve Weens uh, being here last week, delivering that fine message. What a brother he is. Thank you, Steve. I was, um, I was uh, out in uh, Goshen, Indiana, uh, speaking at a Mennonite conference, and just had a blast. Those of you who follow me on Twitter uh, know about some of this, because I, I tweet whatever's going on in my life, and I had, you know, and if you don't follow me on Twitter, you really should, you guys. I mean, I have such an interesting life. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I'm on this tram at the airport. And this girl next to me, this young lady, who I could tell already was quite inebriated, at 11.30 in the morning, it's like, who does that? You should at least wait till noon. The Bible says that. It's not yet the noon hour. Uh, it does, Acts 2, Peter. But we're not drunk, it's not even noon yet. We didn't, we're going to start pounding it down until 12.05. But, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, she's kind of woozy, and then she upchucks a massive, massive amount of... Ugh. And I, I can't tell what she had. It was uh, pretty no, orange. It was, and I, I'm really queasy when it comes to odors, and especially that. And so I, I, I start getting this. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a scene from one movie where everybody starts barfing. I can just picture that happening here in this tram. Everyone like having a barf fest. So I uh, prayed a little blessing over her and got off that tram as soon as I could volunteering uh, out of the goodness of my heart to go report this uh, so someone could come clean it up. But I had to get off that tram. I was going to be in trouble. But then the, the trip went downhill from there. I mean, my plane was delayed. They said, I've never heard this before, but in the terminal, the lady said, when people keep coming up and saying, where's our plane? And they delayed it for 20 minutes and then another 20 minutes, then a half hour. And they never gave a reason for it. And this lady is clearly getting bugged. And finally she goes, She's real frustrated. She goes, uh, folks, I'm sorry, but we don't know where your plane is. We, we, we don't know uh, why your plane isn't here or even where your plane is. So I tweeted, how do you lose a plane? <laughs> They're kind of big, you know. It's a, but I, I, had a, I had a really good time, uh, and uh, just a lot of good things happened. But it's good to be back here. Um, we are here in the sixth of uh, this sixth message of this uh, series, and I'm actually going to continue a little bit next week, weaving it into an Easter message. And by the way, I would really encourage you to make it to the Good Friday service. Uh, that is always a powerful thing here. God shows up in a unique uh, kind of a, a way, and it's subtle, it's powerful. It's so I'll make a point of, of getting to that. But we'll finish, wrap up this series next Friday, uh, next uh, uh, Sunday. But today I want to talk about what is the, I think, the most uh, radical, the most beautiful, to me the most exciting, distinctive aspect of the Anabaptists. Uh, we are, this series has been on our kindred, we're looking at our tribe that we've identified as the Anabaptist tradition. All the distinctives that they hold uh, are distinctives that we hold. And today we'll be talking about what is, I think, the most beautiful and radical of these distinctives. It has to do with the mission of the church, and has therefore to do with their vision of the kingdom of God. And um, it's this. They're, they're known, one way of referring to the Anabaptist tradition is, uh, it's referred to as the peace tradition. And Anabaptist churches are known as peace churches. 
And the reason is because they believed that peace is at the center of the gospel and at the center of the kingdom and therefore at the center of the church's mission, what we're called to do. It's at the center of what Jesus came to bring. And so we're entitling this message, Seeking Shalom. Because we'll see here in a little bit that shalom is the biblical word, and it's used throughout the church tradition, to denote the kind of peace that characterizes God and the kingdom and therefore is to be sought by the church. It has to do with the wholeness of, uh, of, of who God is, the integratedness and the harmony of who God is. They saw that peace is the very essence of the gospel. It's why they are, the Anabaptist strand of the church tradition is the only strand that does not have blood on its hands. They were slaughtered, but they would not slaughter back. That's why I'm very happy to have a group in church history that I can point to and say that is what we aspire to be. Those are our heroes, uh, the ones we look up to. No blood on their hands. It is at this point that I think the Anabaptist group is, is in most contrast, contrast the strongest with the religion of Christendom. Throughout the series, we've been contrasting uh, the Anabaptists with Christendom. Christendom, the religion of Christendom, is that uh, uh, church militant triumphant, the church that rose up in the 4th and 5th century after Constantine gave it all this political power and the power of the sword. And as I've shared in past weeks, at the center of that religion was the idea that they took this pagan uh, assumption, it's as old as humanity itself, the pagan assumption that the way you win is by conquering your enemies or controlling your enemies. And they took that assumption and they Christianized it. Uh, and they said, we will now do that. We will conquer our enemies. But now they do it in Jesus' name. Uh, and so they thought they were going to conquer the world for Jesus and use the sword if necessary. And the Anabaptists said, no, that is not at all consistent with what Jesus came to do. It's not at all consistent with the God that we serve and the king that we submit to. In the kingdom of God, we don't win by conquering our enemies. We win by loving our enemies and by serving our enemies, blessing our enemies, even, even being willing to be sacrificed for our enemies if need be, because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus won, and our job is to replicate everything Jesus did. And so it's at this point that Jesus came to bring peace and calls us to nonviolence and calls us to love our enemies. It is at this point that we find the strongest contrast between the Anabaptists and the religion of Christendom. And therefore, we find the most beautiful, radical, distinctive of the Anabaptist movement. It's not that all of the early Anabaptists were pacifists, or at least unconditional pacifists. A lot of times people assume that. Uh, they actually were too busy being persecuted to try to standardize their theology. You find a lot of diversity in terms of their opinion of how uh, we should behave in the most extreme circumstances. Some believe that there are some extreme circumstances where uh, God is okay with you using uh, force. Uh, others said no, uh, that uh, and there's no, no uh, situation where that is uh, permissible for a kingdom person. And, and yet today, uh, there's a diversity of opinions on, on what to do in those extreme circumstances. Some, maybe even the, the majority, would hold the conviction that I hold, and that is I'm an unconditional pacifist, which means I, I, I at least aspire to have the kind of character where I would, under no conditions, resort to violence. But there's many others who disagree with that. And so you have that diversity within the Anabaptists. You don't have to be an unconditional pacifist to be an Anabaptist. But they 
whatever their theories were about how to behave in extreme circumstances, they all agreed that peace, shalom, uh, resolving conflicts in nonviolent ways, loving our enemies, serving our enemies, remaining, uh, having a humble uh, attitude, that is at the center of everything Jesus is about. And it's at the center of the kingdom, and therefore it's at the center of the mission of the church. We are to be uh, a people who are embodying and are promoting and advancing the peace of God uh, in all circumstances to all people. They rally around that, and it's a beautiful distinctive. They saw what few others have seen, and that is that the message of peace, nonviolence, loving enemies, is permeated into the very fabric of the New Testament. It runs throughout the New Testament. Jesus and Paul and Peter, uh, it, it, it's, it's at the foundation of everything. This is, I believe, and I'll just say it out loud, I believe this is the clearest teaching in the New Testament that is the most ignored. Or at least the, the most minimized. It's as, it's as though when the church inherited the power of the sword in the 4th and 5th century, they were suddenly blinded to this obvious truth in the New Testament. And it proves, I think, the Anabaptist teaching that the mind can never see what the heart is not willing to obey. They were willing to obey it and they saw it. And we here at Wilderness Church stand in line with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers and say, this is a foundational, the foundational teaching of the New Testament. Um, it, we are to be a distinct people who love our enemies. It goes contrary to our fallen nature. It's why people uh, so badly want to act as though that was not in the New Testament, as though they don't see it. But it's, it's the essence of the gospel. This peace, this shalom permeates the New Testament. Here's a few examples. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. The telltale sign of a child of God is that you're a peacemaker. Most people in the fallen world respond to conflict by engaging in more conflict. Uh, if a person's aggressive to you, you're aggressive back. They hit you, you hit them harder. It's the fallen way of responding uh, to conflict, and that's why history is largely history, a record of escalating violence. Retaliation goes on and on. The people of God are distinct. The child of God is distinct because we respond by bringing peace. We don't respond to evil with evil. We respond to evil with good. And therefore, we are to be a people who are always bringing peace into situations of conflict. Several verses later, Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And know that you know, in the first century, first century Palestine, to talk about enemies who persecute you, every Jew in the room is going to be thinking about the Romans. The Romans who were the terrorists who had already conquered, occupied their land. The real nasty kind of enemies, Jesus says, you love them and you pray for them even when they persecute you. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the telltale sign of a child of God, this is so foundational, this is the essence of everything, is that you, uh, you love your enemies. Unlike other people, you love your enemies and you bless those who persecute you. Uh, you love like God loves. You know you're a child of God when you are empowered to love the way God loves. He loves the way the sun shines and the way the rain falls. The sun doesn't choose who it's going to shine on. It just does what it does. And the rain doesn't choose who it's going to fall on. It just falls on whoever's there. 
So also, God is love. And he just shines with that love towards all people at all time. And we are the children of that God. And his DNA runs through us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to be a people who love like the sun shines and the rain falls. We are to be a people who love indiscriminately. It means that if you're a child of God, you don't get to pick and choose who you love. No, there's an on button, but there's no off button. You just love. You know, it doesn't matter what they're doing to you or what they think about you. Uh, or even if they're threatening you, our job is to love the way the sun shines and the rain falls. It's as clear as could be. What is ambiguous about that passage? Is there anything foggy about that passage? No, it's just, it's so radical that, that, uh, that we want to make it obscure, but it's not obscure. And the Anabaptists who were willing to obey it said, boom, there it is. This is, this is who we're called to follow. And how we're called to live. That's why Jesus, when he's talking to Pilate, Pilate says, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And here's the proof. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest. That's what you do in the kingdom of the world. You fight out of your self-interest to protect yourself, to advance your causes. But in this kingdom, the telltale sign that you're not part of the kingdom of the world, you're part of the kingdom of God, is that you don't do that. You don't fight. Uh, one of his soldiers tried to fight, cut off a guy's ear. Peter did. But Jesus showed how he fight in the kingdom of God when he healed the guard's ear. And you love your enemies, you serve your enemies. It's a radically distinct, beautiful, Jesus-looking kingdom. Um, and, and this peace is at the center of it. And then Paul says this. He says, don't be anxious about anything. 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 <laughs> Whoa. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He's just saying, trust God. The peace in your life will be directly proportionate to the degree to which you trust God. Uh, the degree to which you don't trust God will be the degree to which you've got to trust the sword or your harsh words or some other manipulating technique uh, to, to provide for security for you. Don't, he says, trust God, and then you won't be anxious about anything. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. What a promise. The God of peace, he's going to guard your heart to keep it in peace, to keep it centered, to keep from being anxious. That's why the peace that the children of God are capable of, if we access this and will trust him, uh, is a peace that transcends all understanding. Because in situations where your understanding is saying, time to freak out, uh, you have a peace. It transcends that you're understanding. Uh, the natural mind is saying, this is impossible, stress, stress, worry, you know, fear. But you're, in, in the core of your being, your spirit, has access to a peace that never changes. A peace that's rooted in the one who was never, never had a beginning and will never have an end and who never wavers and whom there's no shadow of turning. It's the peace of God himself. The peace that characterizes the triune God. See, this is a peace that goes way beyond the absence of conflict. Because um, it's a peace that you can have in the midst of all sorts of different kinds of conflict. It transcends that. But even more than that, you see, it's the peace of God, the God of peace. Paul uses that phrase a lot, God of peace. The peace that characterizes his own being. And the most distinctive aspect of the peace of God is not that it, there's an absence of conflict. This is the peace of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you wouldn't say, I don't think, that the most distinctive feature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that they don't fight. Well, you know, those guys, they get along so well, they just always agree. That's true, but that's hardly 
the best thing you can say about the peace of God. No, the peace of God is this perfect integratedness, this wholeness. It's the unity of, uh, of the triune God, the right relatedness of the triune God. And uh, uh, that is what we have access to. That is what the word shalom captures. Shalom is not just about the absence of conflict. Shalom is about the wholeness of God, the beauty of God, the integratedness of God, the right relatedness of God. And that is what is at the essence, that is the essence of the gospel. That wholeness, that unity, that love is at the center of the kingdom of God and therefore advancing that, 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 that shalom and embodying that shalom, that unity, that beauty is at the, is the essence of the mission of the church. It's what we are called to be and what we are called to do. The Anabaptists saw that, and it was beautiful. It permeates the entire New Testament. We're called to manifest that. This is also what sets us most apart. They understood this. Uh, it contrasts most strongly with the religion of Christendom, but it also, in a violence-filled, conflict-filled world, this sets us apart more than anything else. If you embody shalom in all situations, in this world, you're going to look different. So here's what Peter says about this. He says, you are a royal priesthood. A chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation. The word holy means set apart, consecrated. God's, by the way, this message is brought to you by Monster Chaos, which is absolutely, does my ADHD no good at all. But it it does taste good. So uh, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, hypernation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him, put on display the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I, I never knew this until I started studying Anabaptist theology, and there's a teaching that goes back to the very beginning. Now that royal priesthood, and they're right about this, that royal priesthood refers to the Old Testament. And um, the, the thing that was distinct about the royal priesthood, the Levites, is that they were a consecrated people, uh, even more than Israel as a nation was. They were uh, called to maintain the temple and called to a special vocation. And the thing that most set them apart is that while everybody else was allowed to fight when Israel went to war, they were not. Because God used them to hold up his ideal of peace. While God was willing to condescend and stoop to working through the violence of people in the Old Testament, he always wanted to remind them that that is not the kind of God he is. He's not a warrior God. He's the God of the Levites. And they bear witness to that by their consecration. So also Peter is saying, we, the church, whoever is in the kingdom of God, we are called to a special vocation. We're consecrated. We're set apart to live in a different way and to manifest the character of God, which is the shalom of God, the harmony of God, the unity of God, the nonviolence of God, and to put that on display. And so while we don't judge others who, uh, it's never the job of the church to impose our calling on others. No, this is just what God calls us to do. We don't judge others who, who, who fight, but we ourselves are called to manifest, to point to a different kingdom, to invite people to a different way of living, to live under a different kind of a king, the chosen nation, the people of God. And in doing that, if we manifest this, well, it stands out. It's separate. It's distinct. It also sometimes will incur the wrath of people. It can get people very angry. Sociologists tell us that one of the strongest bonding forces in any human group is to have a common enemy and an agreement to fight for one another against that common enemy. And so tribes and nations 
are, are characterized by this. We have an identifiable enemy, and we agree to fight when necessary against that enemy. And so if you have a, a, a group of people in that nation who say, sorry, I'm, I'm called to a different thing, I can't do that, well, those folks can get angry at you. They may call you unpatriotic. You're not doing your duty. What are you, weak? You're, you're, you're a traitor. This is one of the reasons why the early church was persecuted. This is one of the reasons why the early Anabaptists were persecuted. You're not one of us. You, you, won't, you, won't, you won't go along with the plan here. You're disrupting the unity of our nation. They understood that. This, this call sometimes invites persecution. I learned when I was at this conference that uh, since 9-11... Uh, attendance at peace churches in this peace tradition has dropped precipitously. And it's one area at 25% since 9-11. Because when a nation is threatened, that's when they, people most rally around the common enemy and agreement to fight against the common enemy. And, and if, you don't, if you're not on board with that, well, it's going to lower your popularity. When, when, when person said it like this, when, the, uh, when patriotism runs hot, the peace message does not. It's very true. Uh, it's, it's very true. Uh, I will tell you that the feedback I've gotten um, indicates to me that at least one of the reasons why uh, the attendance at Woodland Hills has dropped some in the last six years uh, is because of this message. I get some very interesting emails from people whenever I preach a message like this. It, it gets some people very angry. Um, and though they see it's there in the New Testament, it, they just assume it must mean something else. It can't possibly mean what it says because, well, that would just undermine uh, the, the righteousness of our nation's violence. Um, and, and so I, you can see that. But here's the thing. We're okay with that. I'm not as popular as I used to be. Boo-hoo. Uh, you know, we're not called to be uh, popular. We're not called to try to be big. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful, and that's the bullseye, and that's the only thing that matters. Amen. That's the only thing that matters. And sometimes you pay a price for that. Yeah, you got to be willing to pay a price for that. Jesus paid a price for that, but that's all right. Here's the thing that's interesting, is that all over the globe, uh, there are folks who are getting this vision of a shalom God and a shalom kingdom, a nonviolent God and a nonviolent kingdom. And uh, as Christendom was dying, people are waking up to this, and it's beautiful. And so while attendance has dropped at Woodland Hills Church, our podrichner base has exploded. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And it's going to be really interesting to see what role God uses uh, to Woodland Hills in in terms of this shalom revolution that's going on. But uh, where our commitment is to be faithful. And it's not that everybody has to be uh, an unconditional pacifist. But it is the case that we rally around the, the, the vision of the kingdom as, uh, as, as this shalom, uh, embodying shalom and furthering shalom. And the mission of the church is to advance that. That's why Jesus came to earth. The Anabaptists saw it, and we agree with them. Now, I want us to get um, this, this vision. I want us to lock it in. Because uh, here's the thing. It encompasses everything. In God's ideal, original plan for creation, here's how it was going to work. God wants to pour his peace, his harmony, his unity into us. And so we would be a people who are, as we're rightly related to God, we're rightly related to ourselves. And we embody that wholeness of God. And as God overflows towards us, giving us uh, his life and his love and, and, and his harmony, we then would overflow towards others. And the whole human race becomes a, a, a unity that, that mirrors the unity of the triune God. That's always been God's plan. 
Read John 17. Jesus prays that prayer, that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And then in God's plan, we as a united race would overflow and and take care of the animals and the environment, uh, bringing right relatedness to the animals and the environment. And in this way, the creation was supposed to put on display the character of God. Which is to say, it's, the creation is supposed to glorify God. The creation is supposed to put on display the shalom of God, the right relatedness of God. The way God, as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are rightly related, would percolate down into a right relatedness of everything. And that's why the whole creation, the Bible says, is to put on display the righteousness of God. We, when we hear the word righteous, we often think that it's a moral term, an ethical term. Oh, you are so righteous. But it's actually a covenantal term, and it means right relatedness. And so as we're rightly related to God, we get rightly related to each other, to ourselves, and then to one another, and then to the animal kingdom, and then to the environment. And the whole creation puts on display the righteousness of God. You see this running throughout the Bible. Genesis 1, where there's no violence in the animal kingdom. And, and, and the, the coming kingdom, it says the lion will lay down with the lamb. But right now, obviously, it's not quite that way. Because here's what happened. And I want to tell you that um, I initially last night showed a video, a cartoon video to encompass this point, uh, but it was a, a fairly edgy video. Uh, it had, it's a cartoon, but it had violence towards animals, and uh, it's, it's, it was graphic. I think it's brilliant, uh, but it caused some offense with folks, and in light of what Paul says about not offending uh, folks, I, I, we decided to take it out. But we are going to include it on the podcast as an addendum. Sometimes at the end of these messages, I include an additional part of all the stuff I had to take out of the message. So if you want to see this brilliant cartoon, and you're not the type that gets offended, uh, and it's mainly about little kids in the auditorium, uh, then I encourage you to get on and and, and look at this. But here's what happens. We rebelled against God. And in our rebellion against God, now God still does what he does like the sun shines, but we don't receive it. He's pouring himself out always, but now we're in conflict with God. And so we don't receive that, that harmony. And if we're not in conflict, if we're in conflict with God, we become in conflict with ourselves. And when you're in conflict with yourself, you become in conflict with others. And as the human race is all conflicted now, we have a, we have conflict with the animal kingdom and our environment. Plus, when we rebel, we invited the principalities and powers into this domain. And so now the animal kingdom and nature itself is corrupt. And so we live in a world right now that is filled with violence. Hostility permeates everything. A broken relationship with God leads to a broken relationship with ourselves and with one another and with the earth and the animal kingdom. It is all screwed up. It's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute mess. We were the ones who were supposed to be the landlords, the caretakers. That's why in Genesis uh, 2, the Lord tells Adam to guard the garden. To guard it. We were to, we were to care for it. We were to manifest God's shalom character by the way that we care for the animals and the earth, and the way that we love one another. And at the center of this, I want us to see this, at the center of this is, of right relatedness, it's a commitment to see the worth of another, to accurately see the worth of another. You're rightly related to a person or to a thing when you honor its intrinsic worth. And so God honors our worth by uh, being rightly related to us, by pouring, ascribing to us unsurpassable worth. And we're then to be rightly related to ourselves by ascribing unsurpassable worth to ourselves. And we're to be rightly related to all others by ascribing unsurpassable worth to them. But it doesn't stop there because we're to, by caring for the earth and the animal kingdom, we're to see their intrinsic worth, to respect that as, as a, just because they're created by God. And so we're to agree with God that they have worth. Everything does. But now that we're fallen, what happens is instead... 
We try to, we, we use other people and the environment and the animal kingdom to fill the void in our heart that's caused by our misrelationship with God. We become consumers. And so we just consume things around us, and now the only value it has is the value it has for us. We don't honor the intrinsic value of things because it's created by God. Now we assign a value based on how it serves us, how it meets our needs, how it helps our enjoyment. And things of the sort. That's what the cartoon video was all about. We looked at the eyes through the look, look at the world through the eyes of of of, of, uh, of consumers, and then we destroy things. We exploit things. We don't we don't we don't, we don't uh, interact with it with integrity. We become destroyers of the earth. Jesus came. Here's what the Anabaptists saw. Jesus came to restore all that, to repair all of that. Um. Mo- the religion of Christendom taught, and the Western church has, has taught, that at least they, you give the impression that Jesus just came to save human beings. Um, and everything else is just sort of expendable. In fact, there's a theology that's very popular today. It's an, an escapist theology, where salvation is not only just for humans, but it's going to consummate by Jesus coming back and suctioning all the righteous uh, folks out of the earth, and then, boom, the, the earth gets destroyed and, and, and wasted, as though, as though only humans had value, as though God didn't care about anything else, as though, as though God didn't love the animals and the earth that he made, as though they're just like a, a, a Kleenex that you use and throw away. It's just sort of props that we just, you know, they, they, it has no interest. Worth. The Anabaptists said, no, 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 no. And by the way, they didn't work this out in detail. They were too busy being persecuted to have a standardized theology. But you can see the heartbeat of the theology is moving in this direction. That that this shalom that God brings encompasses everything that the fall brought. The shalom, what Jesus does on the cross isn't just for humans. To restore humans implies that you restore everything that was entrusted to humans. We're interrelated with, with the earth and the animal kingdom. And so you can't just say part of this creation, it's an all or nothing kind of proposition, which is exactly what the New Testament teaches. Paul teaches, for example, this. He says, God was pleased to have the fullness of the Godhead, the deity, to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Everyone say all things. Whether in, on earth or things in heaven, to make peace through his blood shed on the cross. All things. The shalom of God in restoring us, it's, it restores everything. All things in heaven and on earth. The cross this was, was, introduced this shalom and the harmony of God uh, that encompasses everything. God, God doesn't give away in this, this myopic, narrow vision of Christendom that salvation is just for human beings, it's as though God concedes everything else to the devil. God does not concede anything. Everything that was stolen, he's going to get back. Everything that was broken is going to be restored. Everything that was oppressed is going to be liberated. Everything that was estranged from God is going to be reconciled to God. Everything that was put into darkness will be brought into light. Everything that Satan stole is going to be returned. And everything that disease has harmed is going to be healed, praise God. Everything that's been corrupted is going to be uh, made whole again. Everything that's fragmented is going to be put together. Everything that's broken is going to be fixed, praise God. The shalom of God encompasses everything. So the good news isn't just about humans. The good news is good news for everything, everyone, all aspects of creation. 
creation. The good news, yes, it's for us, but, but it's also, it's also for the animal kingdom. It, it, it's good news. What Jesus did on the cross, it's good news for elephants. Ah, amen. It's good news for tigers, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. It's good news for, for the orangutan and the giraffes and, 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 and the lions. It's good news for the zebras and the cobras and the snakes. It's good news for the dogs and the cats and the parakeets and the gerbils and the hamsters and, and the, the fish, the trout and the northern pike and the whale. It's good news for dolphins, praise God, because it encompasses everything. It's good news for the butterflies and, and, the, and, and the ladybugs and the ants and the spiders. It's good news for everything, the earth and the land and the sea and the stars and the trees and the sun and the mountains and the valleys and the plains and the grass and the flowers. It's good news for everything. I'm getting crazy about this. Good news. Gospel euangelion. It encompasses everything. God doesn't concede anything. In fact, he, he, he over-restores. He over-saves. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. He over-corrects. That's the kind of God he is. And see, the job of the church, the Anabaptists saw, the job of the church is to carry on the work of the cross. It's to apply the work of the cross, the victory of the cross, every aspect of it. So if, if the shalom that Jesus brought is for humans, but also for everything else. The church is called to manifest the shalom of God for humans, but also for everything else. It's all encompassing. We are called to, and the Anabaptists saw this, we're called to, yes, focus on human beings, to help them be restored to God by introducing them to Jesus Christ. That's bringing shalom into their life. Uh, we manifest shalom to other people by the way that we share our resources, the way that we care for the poor and the oppressed, the way that we welcome the outsider, the marginalized, and the judge, judged. We, we, we're, to, we're to manifest right relatedness with all humans, but also to the animal kingdom and the earth. Some Anabaptists were known for their special care of their farm animals. They treated them like members of the family. They cared about that, and that's a beautiful thing. They had a, a, a teaching that, was, um, that, that said that on, on the Day of Judgment, abused animals are going to stand as a witness against their abusers. God invites them in on this. Do you know that almost all the covenants, not almost all, but many of the covenants in the Bible are made with animals, to humans and animals. They have value. They have intrinsic worth. And, uh, and so the Anabaptists taught, some of them, that um, they said, just as human beings will stand in judgment on the angels, Paul says that. The angels were supposed to care for us, and when they didn't, we will stand as a witness against them. That will be their judgment. So also, the animals will stand in judgment against those who didn't care for them right. And what they're getting at, I don't know how literal this was or anything, but what they're getting at is, is um, that the criteria for how you are doing, in terms of right relatedness, is how do you use power that you have over others? How do you uh, treat those who are vulnerable to your decisions? How do you treat those that you're supposed to care for, those under you? Many Westerners, because we're conditioned this way, we think that it's kind of trivial, animals and the earth. What the Anabaptists saw is, that's the main point. This is the criteria. Includes everything. And we here at Wilderness Church stand in alignment with our Anabaptist brothers and sisters that the shalom of God is the center, the essence of, of God and the essence of the kingdom and therefore the essence of the mission of the church. Uh, to contrast with society by how we put on display the harmony of God. And that, that includes evangelizing and includes uh, ministering to people in need and right relatedness to all people at all times. But it also includes the first mandate. This is the first mandate. The, first, the Magna Carta in Genesis 1 is take care of the earth and the animals. So I'll end with three challenges here really quick. Number one, we are to be a people who cultivate personal shalom. Pay attention to your... See, here's the thing. 
This is the linchpin. You'll never be, you can never bring more peace to the world than you yourself possess. To say it the other way, if you're, conf- if there's a conflict between you and God, there will be a conflict between you and yourself. And if there's conflict within you, you can only bring, to that degree, conflict in the world. When broken people try to fix the world, they simply further break it. So our first responsibility is to make sure that we ourselves have a right relationship with God and therefore a right relationship with ourselves. You can tell when something's broken in this world because you'll experience pain. Pain is the sign that something is not right. And so I encourage you to pay attention to soul pain. Just as we pay attention to physical pain, pay attention to soul pain. And you have to go out of your way to do it. Make space for it. Make it a discipline because it's easy to ignore it or to numb it. That's what most people spend most of their time doing. Running away from it, distracting yourself or whatever. No, we're to be a people who monitor this. Am I rightly related to God and rightly related to myself? If you're, the pain that you'll have if you're not rightly related to God is, is the pain of conviction or the pain of a sense of alienation or emptiness. And the pain that you have when you're not rightly related to yourself is the pain of, of, of a sense of shame sometimes, or it can be a depression or an anxiety. And, and so I, I, I've shared this before. I spend every morning, because I'm way more sensitive in the morning than any other time of the day, and before I even get out of bed, I just I do like a body scan. But it's, it's a soul scan. And I'm saying, where is pain? Uh, do I feel anxiety anywhere or any kind of disturbance? And when you, when you feel it, just follow the pain trail. What is causing that? Ask God to shed light on it. And invariably, you'll find something that is putting you out of sync with God or out of sync with yourself. And when you do that, when you find it, just confess it. You name it. Say it's true. And then uh, repent, which means you turn from it. Ask God to help you turn from it and to correct it. And then receive forgiveness. And it's a daily thing. Daily, we've got to be doing this. Because everything depends on that. And then, secondly, we have to be a people who really pay attention to our, our shalom and our relationships. How we overflow towards others. Are we rightly related to everybody? Do we have right relationships in our family and our friends and our neighbors? Do we have right relationships to others in the church, uh, those that we sort of know uh, uh, and, and uh, acquaintances? And do we have right relationships with those who are strangers to us? Uh, and there we're not trying to have an actual relationship, of course, but we have to have a right attitude towards them. So we ask the question always, uh, am I, is there anything I need to forgive or ask forgiveness for? Do I have anything against anyone or, or do they have anything against me? Uh, we need to be living in the question, am I, am I uh, uh, practicing relationships the way God wants me to? Am I bringing shalom? Am I a peacemaker? I'll always be, be living in this. And I'll just say this. Some people are called to, to have a special ministry around this peacemaking thing. Um, the Mennonites have this peacemaking team where they go into conf- conflicted situations all over the globe. Beautiful ministry. They're also, uh, the Anabaptists are the ones who have this, uh, started this ministry of restorative justice where uh, you don't just punish criminals. You, you, they realize that you, to, you have to restore the relationship by bringing forgiveness into it. So they'll take the murderer and have them sit down with the, the, the father of the son who was murdered and bring about restoration, restorative justice. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the values of aligning ourselves with uh, a, uh, a, a definable church body is that we, we can support things like that and participate in things like that. It can be part of us. But... It, all of us are to be monitoring our, our, our relationships. Is there anything broken, wrong? And to pursue right relationships. And then finally, we have to be a people who seriously look at our relationship to animals and the earth. Are we rightly related to animals and the earth? Um, are 
Do, do our food choices cause unnecessary harm to animals? That's one question to ask. And this is not saying that, you know, everyone's supposed to be a vegetarian or, or that hunting's wrong or anything like that. Everyone's got to seek God on their own to, to get the particulars of this. But we all have a responsibility. If you're a kingdom person, you have a responsibility to know where your food comes from. Whatever, however God t- tells you what, what you can eat, know how it got there. Just like if, if you were benefiting from slavery happening some part place of the world, it'd be your responsibility to, to look at that, to, find, to, to desist from that. So also take responsibility for the implications of your choices. And so also with the earth and the environment. How, what impact does our lifestyle choices have on our environment? And if that strikes you as, 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 as silly or, or, or unimportant, consider the, the, that you're conditioned by a worldview that has just been so human-centered. This is the, the all-important thing. Uh, and um, this is our first mandate. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. But we'll be having a class on this, by the way, at the end of April. As part of our Cultivate classes on Tuesday night, uh, two folks will be teaching a class on, on uh, stewardship of earth and animals. Shalom, praise God, encompasses all this, this whole creation, and it's beautiful. And we have the privilege and the honor of being the people who embody it and manifest it to the world around us. I'll give a closing benediction here, and as I do, could I ask the prayer teams to come forward? And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, any conflict, anything that where shalom is lacking in your life, please come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, let them minister to you. And now as we leave here, would you stand as I say this? Lord, by your grace, empower us to leave here as a people who commit to living out shalom in our relationship with you and ourselves, to living out and manifesting shalom in our relationships to our family, friend, neighbors, and, and strangers. Lord, as we leave here, we do it making a commitment to be a people who, who practice right relatedness and, and manifest shalom in our relationship to animals and to the earth. We want to be a people who in all ways, in every form, at all times, put on display your beautiful character. The integratedness, the beauty, the harmony of the triune God. We surrender ourselves to you to shine on the world in Jesus' name. And all of God's shalom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and shalom on the world. Hello, people of Shalom. God bless you. Welcome to the Pastor's Addendum. Things we uh, didn't have time to get to in the message, but are very important to talk about. Several things, uh, and then we'll get to this cool video uh, that I uh, talked about in the message. Um, One is, I I mentioned how whenever there's anything wrong in our life, um, it's wired into creation that we experience pain. Pain is a warning sign that something's off. Uh, And that's true on a physical as well as a spiritual level. Um, And we are to be a people then who I encourage us to follow pain, monitor pain. It's easy to ignore. In fact, most people spend much of their life running from their soul pain. Um, but we need to people, be a people who pay attention to that and be detectives of that and follow that and find out what it's there for. And I wanted to say something about how it's so beautifully illustrated in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. And you can see that they have a pain about that in that they fear God now. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. That's how we're supposed to be. Uh, being friends of God, but now they fear God, and they're, 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 they have shame. Uh, and um, that shows their disrelationship with themselves. Whenever we're in conflict with God, we'll be in conflict with ourselves. So they experience shame over their own nakedness. And you see how it results in a disrelationship with one another as Adam blames Eve. Now there's judgment uh, in, involved there. You see it later on as Cain murders Abel, and the cycle of violence starts, and it escalates throughout the book of Genesis. 
Uh, you see that uh, the fracturing of our relationship with God brings about a fragmentation of our relationship with animals, and that now animals have to be killed to provide clothing for Adam and Eve uh, to cover up their shame. Where we now have to use animals uh, to cover ourselves because of sin. And then you see, it's uh, the fragmentation with God results in a fragmentation. Uh, with the earth, as the earth is cursed and doesn't produce uh, well. You find that throughout the Bible. Wherever there's sin, uh, it, it, it causes a disrelationship with the earth. And so as we uh, monitor pain in our life, uh, be looking for the ways that wrong, the, our wrong relationship with God leads to a wrong relationship with ourselves, a wrong relationship with others, a wrong relationship with animals, a wrong relationship with the earth. And when we get our relationship with God right, we get our relationship with ourselves right and with others right, with the earth right, with the animals right. Um, follow the pain trail. You, as I mentioned uh, before, you, you uh, can see this, the interrelatedness of, of uh, people and animals and earth all throughout the Bible. We Western folks tend to, and by the way, this is my second point, we tend to uh, fragmentize things, we isolate things, we compartmentalize things. The Hebrews saw it all as interrelated, and because it is, and they expressed it in, in, in various ways. And so you find throughout the Bible, um, whenever uh, the, the, there's human sin, it, result, it has implications for land and for animals. Um, Le- Le- Leviticus 20, the Lord says, Keep my law, follow my ways when I bring you into the land that, I, that I've given to you, uh, so the land won't vomit you out. Um, the Lord said to Cain, when, after he murdered Abel, that the, the, the land that has swallowed your brother's blood it will no longer produce for you. Uh, throughout the Bible, there's this relationship that is there. You see our, our interrelatedness with the animal kingdom in that God, when he makes covenants, uh, a number of times he makes it with people and with animals. And it's just beautiful. When he uh, was talking to Jonah about Nineveh, he says, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to judge Nineveh. Uh, there's, it has so many people there and so many animals, he says. God loves the animal kingdom. just like he loves human beings. And it's all related. It's all interrelated. we got to get out of this compartmentalization. And when we're in disrelationship with God, it causes disrelationship to everything. And so as I said in the message, uh, our, our fracturing of shalom with God, and this brings me to my third point now, um, it, it, it transforms us so that we no longer ascribe, see the inherent worth of things just by virtue of being created by God, but we now try to f- use things and use people to fill the void in our, in our soul that's created out of our disrelationship with God. And uh, we become consumers. We look at uh, the world through the eyes of our hunger, and that it destroys the planet. This cartoon we're not going to see is a brilliant illustration of how we who are created to be uh, exercising shalom dominion over the earth, bringing, bringing shalom and uh, protecting shalom on the earth and the animal kingdom, how we become destroyers and diabolical rulers when we just use the earth and the animals for our own uh, needs. And when we think that the only value they have is the value they have to us, how we kingdom people need to uh, always bear in mind that uh, the world isn't here just for us. Um, no, it's, it's here for God. And God assigns its value, not us. Watch this film and um, take it to heart. This is what we do not want to be. God bless.